If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. If you're visiting us this morning, it is found on page 1048 in the Bibles that are in the chairs. And if you're visiting us and you do not own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Well, Chapman House recently celebrated the birth, I mean, celebrated the birthday of my oldest son, Jace. Oh, yeah. Appreciate the excitement. Yeah, he turned four earlier this week. And y'all, let me say, he has been anticipating his fourth birthday for months, probably since Braley's second birthday, which was back in May. Constantly talking about his birthday, constantly talking about the themes that he wanted. First, it was Paw Patrol. And then it was Spidey and his amazing friends. And then it was Captain. And he was constantly talking about it, y'all. And my wife and I, we would try to warn him. We'd be like, man, hey, Jace, it's only May. Like, man, you got like five months until your birthday. But the thing is, he knew that his birthday was coming. And we couldn't tell him anything. He hasn't gone a week since May of not mentioning his birthday. Like, every week he's constantly talking about the birthday. This joyful anticipation. I see him on the couch with my wife's phone. He's scrolling on Amazon, pointing out the toys, the Paw Patrol toys that he wants for his birthday. He's uh, he's looking under our coffee table. He sees the the books, the photo albums that we had of like his birth and his first three years of life. And he's ready for his next uh, photo album for the fourth year of his life. Like, man, when I say he was on the edge, like he's constantly anticipating this birthday. Preparation, joyful anticipation. And y'all, the birthday came. And he was on 10 the entire weekend. I mean, he's constantly like, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. He's opening up gifts. He's on 10. Like, he's just overwhelmed with joy for the fact that it, is his, it was his birthday. And he's already looking forward to the next birthday. <laughs> and it was so sweet, so encouraging to watch this joyful expectation that stood. Beholding his constant preparation, his joyful struck by it, as it reminded me that Christians are to have that same level of excitement about the return of Jesus Christ. Just as for Jace, his birthday was constantly on the forefront of his mind. He was thinking about it and meditating on it. As Christians, the second coming of Jesus is not to be a distant afterthought, but to be on the forefront of our minds. But we're meditating on that day. We're thrilled about Jesus' coming. We are yearning for our king's infinite return, imminent return because we love him. And it's because we love him, we want to be with him. We know that that day is coming soon. The question for us to consider is do we have that level of anticipation and excitement about the day of the Lord? For as his people, we're to be marked by that joyful anticipation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. If you're able to, please stand for the... 
about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters. You do not need anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Walk to await the return of Christ. Walk as children of light as you await the return of Christ. And the passage gives us three exhortations in light of how we expectantly we're to wait faithfully and we're to wait communally. Wait expectantly, wait faithfully, and wait communally. And so for a little bit of recap, last time we were in First Thess, chapter 4, we were in chapter 4 and Paul unpacked the return of Jesus Christ and the impact that it would have on the dead in Christ. That on that day when Christ returns, they will be with him, their bodies would rise, and we will be changed and caught up and we will be with the Lord. Well, in this morning's passage... Paul unpacks how Christians who are alive are to live as we await the day of the Lord. In the first exhortation, Timothy likely brought a report to the Apostle Paul that they, the church had questions concerning the return of Christ. And specifically, they were concerned about when. When would Jesus return? To which Paul responds in verse 1, he says, about the, times, brothers, about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. They received sufficient instruction on the day of the Lord. And the details that they were inquiring were unavailable. For in the Gospels, Jesus himself made known that no one knows the day or the hour, only the Father. And when Jesus says no one knows, he means no one knows. And so we can stop our, we can put away our calendars, we can stop our predictions, we can stop watching the news with our Bible open to the book of Revelation. 
for no one knows the day or the hour. And though we do not know when, there is something that we do know. We do know that Jesus is returning. And in the Gospels, Jesus himself tells his disciples to be alert, to be ready, to live in light of that day, for it is sure to come. It is more certain than our very next breath. Very well, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. This congregation was acquainted with the day of the Lord. The question is, what is the day of the Lord? We heard about it in our scripture reading this morning. The prophets of old, they've spoke faithfully and clearly on the day of the Lord. If you read the prophets, so what is it? Well, it is the day when God himself, the holy and righteous one, the king, the one who is worthy, who is infinite in glory, he will condescend to the earth that he created. And on that day, he will bring judgment upon his enemies. Those who do not know him, those who don't love him, as we read in Joel chapter 2, he will execute his judgment upon his enemies. And it is also a day of salvation for those who love him. The prophets, they spoke regularly about the day of the Lord. The thing is that they didn't know is that there will be two comings of the Lord. As we read in the Gospels, the Lord is applied to Jesus Christ because he is the Son of God, the eternally begotten Son who has wrapped himself in human flesh. He came upon the earth that he himself created. And in his first coming, he came as he walked this earth. He perfectly obeyed the commands of God the Father. He is the servant of the Lord and he fulfilled the prophecy of being the suffering servant, to where on the cross he would bear the punishment for all the sins of all who would trust in him, to where all of God's wrath for believers have been exhausted. He would atone for our sin, reconciling us to God, for the very purpose of him coming was to save sinners. And three days later, he rose from the grave, ascended on high, and he has commissioned his people, his church, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The time between the first and second coming is often referred to as a favorable time, a day of salvation, because the gospel is going forth, and sinners can repent and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved by the grace of God. We know this because by God's grace, we who have trusted in Jesus, we have been forgiven. We have received this precious salvation through faith. Right hand of God, his arms are open, his hands of mercy are extended, and he is beckoning sinners to turn and trust in him. He is patiently waiting. And there will be a day when his patience runs out. When the day of salvation will give way to the day of vengeance. It is on that day when our glorious king will come in transcendent glory. The glory that you see in the transfiguration. The glory that is all consuming. He will come in that glory and he will judge. 
pouring out his righteous wrath on those who have opposed him and his people, who refused to believe in him and be saved by his grace, to where they will experience his fury consciously for eternity, not one second of relief. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have nothing to fear on that day. The day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, it is only scary for those who are not in Christ. We who have trusted in Jesus, we don't fear God's judgment that is to come because that judgment was poured out upon his son. Christ died for all, all, all of our sins. God's wrath for our sins has been satisfied through the death of Jesus Christ. And so we do not have to fear. We expect it. Paul says in verse 2, For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come. We can wait expectantly because we know that it will come. Notice that Paul didn't say that it might come. He didn't say that there's a 50-50% chance that it will come. He says that the day of the Lord will come. It is certain. And y'all, Paul's not crying wolf. He's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This very day, God has promised through his prophets Jesus has spoken of this day in his earthly ministry, and the Holy Spirit has written about it in the scriptures. It is certain to come. Beloved, we have no reason to doubt whether or not that day will come because God has promised it. And he who promises is faithful. The reason we have no reason to doubt is because name one promise that God has made where he has dropped the ball. Beloved, when we make plans, whether it's plans for fall break that many teachers are basking in, whether it's upcoming Christmas or summer vacation, when we make plans, scripture, because our life is a vapor. We do not know if God, we don't know if we're going to see that day because God hasn't promised to fulfill our plans. And though we are to say, Lord willing, we are also instructed to plan and anticipate, and we do it with open hands. But, beloved, when you see in Scripture the day of the Lord, one thing you will never see by the phrase is the phrase, Lord willing. And that's because it is certain to come. God himself has promised that Jesus will return. And so, beloved, if we plan and anticipate future things that God hasn't promised, then how much more should we with the day of the Lord to which God has promised? May we plan and prepare ourselves expectantly knowing that Jesus will return. Parents. We're diligent in preparing our children for their birthdays, for school, for dance recitals. How much tea for the day of the Lord? Fathers, may we be diligent and take priority in instructing our children on the day of the Lord. 
Regardless of how old or young they are, we can be talking with them about this day. And, y'all, we don't have to be all intricate. We can just be simple with it. Letting our children know, hey, Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he is the judge of the world. And there's nothing scarier than being judged by Jesus for your sin. And there's nothing sweeter than being saved by Jesus from your sins. And there will be a day when Jesus will return and all of us will spend an eternity somewhere. And where we go is dependent upon how we respond to Jesus in this life. We can be that simple with our children, constantly telling them this and praying for them by God's grace to comprehend and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. Paul goes on to talk about how the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And one of the things you know about thieves I don't know many. I don't know any, actually. <laughs> but I see a lot of TV shows. And one of the things you know about a thief is they're likely going to come when it's least expected. They're coming quickly. They're coming suddenly. They're coming without warning. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about the day of the Lord. That's how it will be for unbelievers. Jesus will come without warning. He will come suddenly and he will come quickly. Look at the verse again. He says, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains. So the unbelievers, they will say peace and security. This is a common phrase that was used by unbelieving citizens in Rome in light of the Roman Empire. They hoped in Caesar in the military. And for them, they had this illusion of peace. They didn't have peace, but an illusion of peace because they looked around and saw no enemies, no rivaling kingdom. And even today, many people still have this illusion of peace because they placed their hope in the political party that's in office. Or they placed their hope in their bank account and they're satisfied with how much money is in there. Or their ex of history. Well, the problem then and the problem now is the direction by which they are looking. They are looking around and see no enemies. But they have not looked up to see that they themselves are an enemy of God who is holy and righteous who is gracious and merciful to save, whose hands have been extended, who desire for them to repent. They have scorned his salvation. They have rejected his grace in Christ. And so on that day, they will know his fury. And Jesus says that this judgment will be unexpected upon the unbelievers, and it is unavoidable. He says that it will be like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, if you have either been pregnant and had a child or you know someone who's been pregnant and had a child, a woman, then you would know that labor pains, they come unexpectedly and they're inevitable. They come without warning. You know, regardless, you can be in the middle of the night getting some of the best sleep you've ever gotten. Labor pains. 
You can be late afternoon just hanging out, eating lunch, or you can even be on a date. They give you no heads up, letting you know that they're coming. They just come, and pregnant women know that you can't avoid or evade labor pains. You just have to go through it. And what Jesus, what Paul is saying is that God's judgment upon unbelievers on that day, it will come inevitable. They will not avoid it because they refused to flee the wrath to come by believing in Jesus Christ. And so God will pour out his righteous judgment. All of their vain hopes, whether it's politics or morality or their wealth, it will not deliver them from the wrath to come. They have scorned Jesus' precious salvation, so they will know his righteous wrath. And so, friends, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, I am glad you are here. We have been praying for you. I want you to know that there is a day that is coming when Christ will return and judge his enemies. And, friends, that is bad news for you because you have not trusted in Jesus. But the good news is Christ came to save sinners. He died to save sinners. He rose to save sinners. And his hands are extended. Friends, you can trust in Christ today and be forgiven. You can be delivered from wrath that is to come. And it's solely by trusting in Jesus every day. To trust in Christ and be saved by his grace. His grace is as real as his wrath. His forgiveness is precious. Don't reject it. If you want, you can talk with any of our members after service. We love to have these conversations. Paul makes known that this day will come. In fact, the Thessalonians, they have been awaiting the day, so much so that Paul actually commended them for their faithfulness in waiting the day of the Lord. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul recalled their endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he talked about how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. By God's grace, the Thessalonians waited well. The question for us to consider is how are you doing and waiting expectantly and eagerly for the return of Christ. If God were to grade you on waiting his son's return, what type of letter grade would you receive? And why? Beloved, the reality is, where there is complacency in our walk with the Lord... In a love for the world, there will be no desire and no eager expectation for the return of Christ. We have real enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, who wants us to keep our gaze only upon this life and numb us to the life that is to come. If you know me, you know that I love me some snickerdoodle cookies. Like, I really do, y'all. Them mugs are off the chain. I love them, Junts. I especially love my mother-in-law's snickerdoodle cookies. 
Them must be so good. I would offer you guys some, but I'll likely eat them all. But it's one of the reasons why I look forward to being with my in-laws because I'm confident that my mother-in-law, she's going to make some snickerdoodle cookies. And so we go. I look forward to it. And if I am not careful and disciplined, I can eat too many, which would be really, really bad for many reasons. My health, my marriage, my relationship with my in-laws. Another reason why it would be really bad is that it can spoil my appetite for food, for the actual meal. I'll find myself actually being repulsed by the sight that is actually to produce great joy in my heart. And so if you're not picking up what I'm joy, God's good gifts that he give us. But we shouldn't indulge in them and exalt them to where it curbs and curtails our appetite for the promised glory that is to come. May we labor to create, may we labor to have an increasing love for Jesus to where we long for his imminent return. May our spiritual palates salivate the glory that is to come, for we know that it is coming. Beloved, may we wait expectantly. And the thing about waiting is that it's not a new thing for God's people. God's people have always been marked by waiting. Think about Abraham. God promised that he would have a son, and he waited years before Isaac was born. Israel, in bondage to Egypt, they waited 400 years before God delivered them from bondage. David, he was anointed king and waited years until he was installed as Israel's king. After Israel went into exile, they waited 70 years before they were delivered from exile. And since the great promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that one is to come in the Old Testament, they waited and waited and waited for the fulfillment of God, fulfillment for God to make that promise. And we know that that promise was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came, died and rose again from the grave. And now we, on the other side of the cross, we await the return of our glorious King. The question is, how are we going to wait? Beloved, if we're going to wait expectantly and eagerly, then we must replay in our heads the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and the promised return of Christ as if it was our favorite song on repeat. For Jesus is returning. Beloved, may we eagerly await his imminent return. So may we wait expectantly, and as we wait expectantly, may we wait faithfully. Paul turns his attention to the church. They're not surprised by this day. In fact, they eagerly awaited it because they trusted in Jesus Christ and knew that he was to return. Look at verses 4 and 5. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light and children of the or the darkness. In this verse, Paul uses spiritual overtones to explain the clear contrast between day and night and light and darkness. He says that we are children of light. He focuses particularly on salvation. We have received it. Jesus himself says in John 9 that he is the light of the world. 
He is the true light who gives salvation to all who would believe. Whereas darkness here is characterized and refers to things that are evil, wickedness, and specifically the dominion of sin. Paul is getting at the reality that there are moral implications that accompany these spiritual realities. He says that we are children of light. Now, this is true of us, and it's not because of our morality. It's not because of our voting pattern. It's not because of our intellect. Formerly, we were in the darkness and the night. Like Bain, we were born in the darkness and molded by it. And we couldn't free ourselves from it. But God, as we talked about and read in the scriptural assurance of part in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love that he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ Jesus. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. By God's grace, we believe the gospel of Christ and we've been adopted into God's family to where now we are children of light. We are children. Beloved, we have been saved by God's grace, which means we are no longer in Adam but in Christ. We're no longer in darkness but in light. We're no longer dead but we are alive. We're no longer children of Satan but we are children of God. That means that we are to live differently because this new identity has bearings on a new way of living. By grace, we are not who we used to be. And so by grace, we do not do what we used to do. Look at verse 6. Paul says, so then let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. Here Paul contrasts sleep, which in this verse, it refers to spiritual stupor, moral lethargy. He contrasts being asleep with temptation here. It's to be alert and sober-minded, for we know that Christ is returning. The exhortation is for us to be faithful and being watchful and vigilant. And this requires that we daily mortify our flesh and walk by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It means that we're to be a people who, are em who embody the ethics of the kingdom that is to come. It means that we would be faithful to Jesus, loving him and our neighbor, Abiding in God's word and prayer, pursuing holiness as pleases the Lord, and beckoning people to turn from their sin and trust in Christ. It means that we are to be a people who are faithful. My senior year of high school, I was a cook for Whataburger. If you don't know what Whataburger is, feel bad for you. It's a really dope fast food chain. They got one in Mississippi. Yeah, I was the chef. I was the cook, constantly, grill master. At least that's what I'll call myself. And for all the employees of Whataburger, they, there was an expectation that every order made will be prepared and handed to the customer within two minutes and 30 seconds. And sometimes 
the headquarters would send a shopper who would come. And we wouldn't know who the shopper was, but this mysterious person, they would hand it to him in time, we'd get a little money. Really excited about that. And so what did all my employees do? Well, we tried to treat every customer as if they were a shopper because we didn't want to get caught slipping, and we also wanted that bonus. We are faithful. Now, if, I was, if that was our mentality as workers, then how much more should that be our mentality as Christians? So we're ongoingly being faithful to Christ as we await the return of Jesus. And we don't do this not because we're, trying, we're enamored by the gifts that he gives. We do this because we're enamored by him. We love him. He is glorious. He is holy. He has saved us by his grace. And so we want to be faithful in response to who he is and what he has done for us in Christ. Paul contrasts day and night, saying that we don't belong to the darkness and the night. And so our, those who are in the night, they oppose Christ. They hate him where he has our allegiance and affections. Just as day and night differ, so should our conduct differ from those who don't know Jesus. Paul goes on to contrast Verse 7, he says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Seeing that we belong to the day, it impacts what we do at night. And for those of us who belong to the day, our lives are to be characterized not by the nightlife, but by resting. It's not to say that we can't celebrate and hang out with our friends in the evening, but it is to say that our lives are not characterized by the sins that take place at night, like drunkenness and all that accompanies it, sexual immorality, wild parties. Those vices were actually seen as virtues in that community, as it is today. But seeing that we belong to the day, we live differently. And Paul begins to unpack how we are to live in verse 8. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Here in this verse, Paul makes a contrast. Think about chapter 5, verse 5. He says, we don't belong to the night. Or eight, he says, we belong to the day. The reality is where we belong spiritually impacts how we live physically. And in verse 8, the very beginning, you see the indicative. He gives a factual statement. He says, we belong to the day. In verse, the second part of verse 8, he gives an imperative. Let us be self-controlled. And here we see the relationship. One of many in the scriptures, the relationship between an indicative and an imperative. It is necessary that we understand the relationship that we may have the right motivation for obedience. And so let's get into the lab and then I'll bring this to our level. Indicatives. You read the Bible, you'll see many indicatives in Scripture. These are factual statements. Oftentimes they speak of our identity. 
It's a declaration, and it's always in light of what God has done for us. Like in this passage, Paul says that we are children of the day. We are children of light. We belong to the day. All of this is solely a gracious work of God that he has done through Christ for us. This is who we are. This is whereas imperatives, they're commands. Exhortations in scripture. Exhortations towards obedience in light of what God has done. Beloved, the imperatives are based upon the indicative to gain God's love or so that God would save us. Instead, we obey because God loves and has saved us. This means that we don't obey in order to put God in our debt. Instead, we obey because God in Christ has paid our debt. What this means in this verse is that we don't obey to become children of light. Instead, we obey because God has made us children of light. And Paul spells out what obedience looks like for us. He says, let us put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. Here we have the imagery of a soldier. And the armor here is similar to the Lord's armor in Isaiah chapter 59 verse 17. It's also similar to the armor in Ephesians chapter 6. But here, faith, love, and hope. Our lives are to be characterized by faithfulness to God. So we have trusted in Jesus Christ. We are committed to him and we are walking in his ways out of a love for him. Our lives are to be characterized by love out of a love neighbor. We are to be a people who are known by love. And we put on the helmet of the hope of salvation. Our meditation is constantly on the imminent and promised return of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we are to put these things on daily like clothes. And as we do this by God's grace, we would live like children of light. As we walk in step with this identity, we will look more and more like our Lord. As we pursue his likeness, beloved, we will be faithful in awaiting his return. So we are to wait expectantly, we are to wait faithfully, and we are to wait communally. Look at verses 9 and 10. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. God in his love predestined us before the foundation of the world for our ultimate, not be the wrath that is rightfully ours, but he predestined us for salvation, a gift that we may be with him in his benevolent presence for all of eternity. And y'all, there was nothing in this because of his love. It was his volition, his choosing. He never started loving us. He always did. It's the very reason why we are saved, beloved. It's because God loved us and chose us. And his future salvation is through Jesus Christ, who is the lamb who was slain. He died for us on the cross 
The very reason that there will be no wrath for us on the day of the Lord is because Jesus bore it in our place. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were laid upon Christ. The Bible would say that he propitiated, my bad, he propitiated God's wrath, meaning that his justice was satisfied. Behold God's love for us in Christ. That what awaits us is not judgment, but future eternal glory. We have salvation now, and we will experience it in full on that final day. When we are with the Lord in the new heavens and a new earth. A land of perfect righteousness and peace and justice. Where love abounds and overflow and joy is eternal. Beloved, God in Christ, he is secured. We are to live differently. And the way we live matters. This saving work doesn't lead us to isolation, but community. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. God has saved us. Christ has died for us individually. He saved us individually and he died to make us a people collectively. A church so now we don't do this Lone Ranger Christianity. Christianity was never intended to be lived in isolation, but in a context of a local community. And in this verse, Paul gives the church an exhortation and an encouragement. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. That is the exhortation. As we await the day of the Lord... It does not push us away from each other, but push us towards each other. Our waiting is in the context of community. It is through community we own all the more to faithfulness and obedience to Christ, reminding one another that that day is drawing near. It is as we wait in community that we remind one another of the gospel of Christ and apply the gospel to every area of our life. And we tell each other. The reality is, beloved, we need each other because we are weaker than we think. As we live in isolation, we are all the more susceptible to being ensnared in sin. We are prone to drift and divert our attention elsewhere. It is in the context of a local community that we remind each other of the glorious truths, and it helps us to refocus our eyes back to Jesus Christ. Beloved, we wait as a community because we will be in glory together as a community. There aren't silos in the new heavens and the new earth. There are people who are gathered around together, worshiping the lamb who was slain. I'm going to bring our attention again to this exhortation. Look what Paul says. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. The exhortation here is not to merely be encouraged. For that is the result of someone else's obedience. So may we not be a people who sit and be showered with encouragement and yet be silent. 
the exhortation is to encourage one another and build each other up, which means we have an active role to play in this exhortation. We are to go to one another and be with each other and open our mouths and speak encouraging words to one another. We share the truth of God's word and the purpose, the purpose, the purpose is one another's edification. To build each other up in Christ. Beloved, the question is, how are you doing in encouraging the body? Not merely waiting to be encouraged, but taking the initiative to encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. How are you doing in reminding one another that our king is coming soon? That we are exiles, that we are not yet. As we encourage one another in these ways, we help one another live and walk as children of light, waiting the return of Jesus. Beloved, God uses our encouragement to aid our perseverance. It refreshes us like water stations when you're running a half marathon. May we do that with each other. And Paul concluded with an encouragement. He says, as you are already doing. The congregation was getting after it. They knew the role they played, and by God's grace, they played it well. And beloved, I can't help but take the opportunity to encourage you guys. For many of you, by God's grace, are in each other's lives. A number of you are bearing each other's burdens and applying God's word and memorizing and meditating on scripture together. Opening your lives and opening your hearts. Keep on doing it. We may not always see the immediate fruit, but beloved, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. A number of you are laboring for the maturity of other saints in the body. Beloved, my prayer is that all of us, we as a church, would do this together. For the day is drawing near. Our king is one day closer to coming. Salvation is nearer today than when we first believed. He is coming soon. Beloved, may we wait well. Just as my son waited for, that birth, for his birthday with joy and preparation, may our congregation be marked by joy and preparation as we await the day of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your grace your love in Christ and how you have saved us, called us out of darkness into your light, made us citizens of your coming kingdom as we await the age to come, knowing that it is sure to come. Father, help us by your grace to wait well. May we do so in the context of community. May we resist the fleshly desire to live for the here and now. May we walk by your spirit. 
longing for the return of Christ, our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.